Uh, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to share 37 verses today, which is terrifying for me. Uh, if you know me, giving me 30, I, I don't know what Brandon was thinking, giving me 37 verses is like handing somebody the keys to a Lamborghini and being like, why don't you keep it under 45? <laughs> it's just not going to happen, but here we go. Well, this morning we're talking about the bread of life. And so I brought a little visual aid uh, with me this morning, courtesy of my wife. Hopefully you guys on, y'all on this side can see it. But if not, you can see it up here on the screen. This is a type of bread that my wife has become very, very good at making. And uh, it's called challah. And uh, some, somebody, some of you may not be familiar with it, but uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of, uh, of help in understanding this. Um, challah was a bread that was kind of developed by uh, Jews in the Middle Ages uh, in a way to commemorate what God had done for Israel. And uh, this is very hard for me right now because it's like temptation right at my right hand, you know? Like I tell myself and I tell other people, if you've ever heard me say I, I hate bread, that's not actually true. I love bread, but I have to tell myself that I hate bread or else I'll eat the bread. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about, right? Bread is dangerous because it's very, very good. I try to be like low-carb-ish, but when this is in the house, I got no chance, y'all. I have no chance. Um, so this is, you'll see I even broke off a piece this morning. I tried to eat it while I was talking. That doesn't go well. So, uh, but especially if I'm hungry, man, this just looks, and it smells Oh, if you guys could, if you guys could smell it, somebody asked me in the first service, why didn't you just chop that up and and uh, hand it out to people? Well, because this is mine. That's why. <laughs> this is my. This is a slice. This is one slice for me. But uh, just a few things about challah. Uh, this was made for the Sabbath meals on Friday evenings, and and holiday meals included two loaves of challah. And that's we do have two loaves of this. I have half here. I have half back in the office, and we saved one at home just for the kids. By for the kids, I mean for me sneaking. So, uh, But two loaves of challah, uh, the double portion of challah represents the double portion of manna uh, from heaven that God sent to the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt on Fridays so that they would not have to gather it on Sabbath the following day. They're often braided. The loaves are braided with six strands each, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, if it's made for different holidays like Rosh Hashanah, um, it's round to commemorate uh, continuity without beginning or end. But it can be made into other shapes depending on what the holidays are. The poppy seeds that, uh, that are on top of it or sesame seeds that may go on top of it sometimes are representing the manna that fell from heaven. And during a traditional Sabbath evening, it's covered by a decorative cover. It represents the layer of dew um, that enclosed the manna and kept it fresh during the Exodus. Um, also, the word itself, challah, is derived from an ancient Hebrew word that meant portion. So in biblical times, Jews were to give a portion of the bread to the Kohanim or to the priests every Sabbath. So this bread that is in front of you that you see right now, it's a representation, right? It's meant to point to something that is much bigger than just the bread itself. And the experience of eating this bread should make me pause and consider that spiritual reality behind it and the provision and the deliverance that God gave to his people. 
But if I'm honest, when I'm eating it, all I'm thinking is, man, this is good. I'm much more enamored with the taste of the bread. And when I eat it, I give thanks for my wife's baking skills and I give thanks for my taste buds. And then afterwards, I'm still hungry and a little bit ashamed, mostly because I'll say that I don't want any more, but then I sneak into the kitchen when nobody's looking and cut off just enough of a slice where you can't really tell anything's gone. Husbands, anybody else doing, doing that? No? No, I don't want any. And you just sneak in there and learn it from my dad. We called it franking something. Just cut off a little slice. But this is how we find the people in John chapter 6. They've just been fed, right? Miraculously fed, but they're still hungry, right? They've had the bread, but they're still hungry. And they're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong things when the creator of satisfaction and fulfillment is standing right among them. The problem is they don't, they're not even sure really what they're looking for. They're looking for something amazing to happen. They're looking for Jesus to do something else amazing or to give them something uh, on top of what he's already given them. They're looking for bread. We see this in verses 22 through 29. And specifically, look at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the crowds go looking for Jesus. They'd just been fed miraculously, but now they want to find him because they want to see more cool stuff. It seems pretty clear at this point the crowds were looking for a king who would provide for them both physically and politically. And the political aspect is really, really important, right? When they're waiting for a king, they're not just waiting for uh, kind of their own little king in their own little area. They are looking for the promised Messiah. They are looking for the king of Israel. They don't want to be in captivity under the Romans anymore. They want Israel to be made great. And so they're hoping that this king is going to fulfill what they thought were all those promises about the kingdom. They, they were enamored with the signs that Jesus had performed to this point, but they're also anticipating, like, how is he going to continue to prove to us that he is the one who has all our kingdom hopes? They wanted to be provided for. They wanted their needs met. And that's really where we are too. We want to be provided for. We want to have our needs met. As independent as we think we are, we're all looking for something or someone to meet our needs to provide for us. And they were focused on the signs that Jesus was performing, but they were blind to the spiritual reality of their needs and how Jesus had come not just to fulfill their physical needs and their, and their hunger and their longings, but to, to fulfill those deeper needs, those deeper longings. It bring, brings up something that Paul reminds us of, actually in Philippians chapter 3, that when he says their God is their appetite, right? They're driven by their base desires of, I want to be taken care of, I want to be provided for, I want to see something amazing. They were looking for Jesus, but really they were just looking for the things that Jesus would do for them. And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are we looking for Jesus, or are we just looking for Jesus to do things for us. Because that's very different, right? If we're looking for a Jesus who just does things for us, then we might just back off of Jesus when he doesn't do the things that we think that he should do. It's different than looking for Jesus himself. And he actually calls out the crowd's motivation. He says, you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not, you're not even seeking me because of the signs themselves. You're seeking me because you think I'm going to provide for you again. 
And he corrects them by pointing them to a seeking of eternal things. In verse 27, he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So he makes a declaration right off the bat. I am the one upon whom God has set his seal. I am the representative, right? I am here representing God. I am his representative. I'm right in front of you. So don't work for things that, that perish, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And that comes from me. God has blessed me and set his seal on me. I'm the guy, he says. But even when Jesus points them to himself, they automatically respond with this. Look at verse 28. So when Jesus says, hey, don't seek or work for the stuff that perishes, right, but, but for the food that lasts. And so their first question is like, well, what can we do to perform the works of God? What do we have to do? Right? The automatic response to Jesus saying, hey, you need to seek for eternal things is like, great, what do we have to do? And this lays the foundation of what we're going to encounter in this interaction. The response of sinful people to their need, right, to our needs, is to immediately think, what can I do to secure blessing? What can we do for you? How do we secure life? How do we uh, secure all these things that we need? Jesus is going to confront this misunderstanding, beginning with telling them that the work is actually to believe in him whom the Father has sent. Verse 29, the work is to believe. Because here's the deal. God does the actual work on our behalf. They say, what do we have to do? He says, believe. That's what you have to do. But the rest of this passage, he's going to show that like that work of belief is actually a gift from the Father. There's nothing that we can do for Jesus unless there is first faith in Jesus. And let me say that again. If you're here this morning and, and you're laboring under, I got to do all these things for Jesus. I got to perform, perform, perform. That's not actually how this relationship works. That's not, it's not how it's designed to work. Jesus is not impressed by what we do for him, right? Unless we are primarily in him. We function with dependence on Christ. We draw from his strength. Anything that we do that's for Jesus has to come actually from Jesus, not from us, right? We don't work our way into grace. That's why it's grace. And many people like these people are asking, well, what do we have to do to get this blessing from God? And Jesus says, we have to believe in him whom God has sent. Jesus' direction is to turn our eyes on his work, not our work. Turn, turn your eyes on his work, to seek for something eternal and not just satisfaction in our circumstances or in our action. Because faith is a change of heart that actually leads to action and devotion. So James and Paul are both right when it comes to faith, right? That faith is not, uh, our salvation is not achieved by our works, but... When we are saved, it leads to us living a life of devotion, right? That faith does work itself out, but only through Christ and what he has done. But this is true. It is impossible to see who Jesus is and what he's really doing when we are relying on our own work. If you are focused on what you can do for Jesus, it's going to be awful hard to see what Jesus actually has done for you. So what are their ex expectations of the promised Savior? 
What is it that they think that they need to be saved from? And how is it that we think that we can be changed? How, how does life get better? How do we really experience what God has for us? Do we work harder? Do we try more? What is the source of our hope? Well, it's the bread. Second thing we see is Jesus is the bread in verses 30 through 40. So throughout this interaction, we're going to see the response of the crowd and how it reveals their self-seeking focus, right? They're not really seeking Jesus for Jesus. They're just seeking Jesus for them. And again, it's, it's a completely different thing. But they also have a complete inability to recognize who it is that's standing in front of them. I mean, this is God. I mean, the prologue of John draws us to, to see that his own people like, encountered him, but they, they didn't know it. They couldn't see it. They need proof from Jesus. They're, they basically say, so show us something that will make us believe, right? If, if we have to trust your work, then verse 30, what work are you going to do for us? Like, so if, if it's, the work is to believe, then show us. Give us something to believe. What are you going to do to prove to us that we should believe in you? And then in verse 31, they basically say, hey, look what Moses did for us. He gave us bread from heaven. You only have given us bread from earth. Basically, what they're saying is like, look, what you did is great and all, but all you did was took bread that was already here, and then you somehow multiplied it and made it work for all of us. But that's not even as good as what Moses did, right? And remember, what what Josh told us last week is they were looking for the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. They were looking for someone who would actually give them the true bread from heaven. But they had two things that they didn't understand. One was Moses wasn't the one who gave it to them. And number two, it wasn't just bread. So Jesus, Jesus is going to take this challenge. And it's funny because they actually use the biblical record to challenge Jesus. They, they use Exodus 16 and Psalm 78 to basically say, hey, what you did is not even as great as what Moses did, and we're looking for that greater prophet. Now imagine being so blind that you challenge the Son of God about the Word of God, right? Jesus is going to take their challenge. Verses 32 and 33 says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said in verse 32, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the real bread from heaven. So Jesus is going to emphasize their error. First of all, Moses was not their redeemer. There's always only been one redeemer, and he is not Moses. See, these people had actually made God and, and Jesus here secondary to Moses. They were fixated on the earthly kingdom. And they were completely missing what God's work was always pointing to. That Moses not only didn't give them bread, but the bread that comes from heaven isn't the past tense manna. It is the present tense Jesus. The Father is actually now giving them the true bread from heaven. Jesus is the bread that God had promised for complete fulfillment, right? It wasn't what Moses gave you then. What Moses gave you then just lasted for a day and it was gone. That's not really, it's like angelic food, but that's not really the bread from heaven. The bread from heaven is not past tense and you're not looking for something other. You're looking for the actual bread from heaven. That's me. That's what Jesus says. The Father is now giving you the true bread. Jesus is the bread God had promised. He's the, the source, the substance of fulfillment. And it's now here. 
right? Back then, the Israelites had to wait daily for bread, and it didn't last past the day. If you read uh, the, the testimony of what manna was, first of all, does anybody know what the word manna means? What is it? That's great, right? They named it. What is it? What, we don't even know what it is, but it's, you know, okay, it'll get us through the day. It got them through the day, but then before the Sabbath, they had to pick up a double portion. But if they picked up too much on the day to save it for the next day, it was rotten. It only was meant to last for the day, to get them through the wilderness. That was the promise. But now, there's no more waiting for bread. And the bread that is given to them contains eternal life, not just meant for a day, but for every moment from now until eternity, to carry them all the way through, right? And even in eternity, it would be the same source and the same fulfillment. What they are being offered right now is meant to carry them through forever. There's not going to be any other bread. Jesus is the bread. The Father is the provider. Jesus is the bread, and the bread gives real life, not just a satisfying of a physical hunger. But the problem with these crowds, with this crowd in particular, is that they're unable to understand the spiritual because they're so fixated on the physical. They've become obsessed with the things that are perishing, right? So even a good thing like manna, even something that God gave to them, wouldn't last past one day. But it was meant to point them to true bread from heaven. They're unable to see it. So in verse 34, they, they really began mocking him. So they say, sir, give us this bread always, which really the translation of that is like, all right, man, then show us what you got. If this is so great. Show us. Show us the bread. So Jesus has to say it again. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It's me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. The invitation that Jesus gives is not just to, to follow him around looking for something miraculous. But he says, whoever comes to me and believes in me, right? Look at verse 36. As I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. In verse 35, he says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. This is fully embracing who Jesus is. Jesus is the source and the substance of true life. Right? He's the source. He's where life comes from. True life can only be found in Jesus. But it's not like you just take Jesus one time and then you walk away. Right? You continually feast and feed on who he is. He, he's not just in the moment, but he's eternally. He's the constant substance of true life. Our most foundational needs are satisfied only in Jesus. You might think, here are my main needs. But what we think our main needs are aren't really our main needs if we look at life as actually being eternal and not just here. The problem was they were looking at life here now, not life for all time. But our most foundational needs are only satisfied in Jesus. And Jesus not only mentions hunger, but also thirst, which seems weird because Jesus just throws... Jesus just throws metaphors in. It's almost like he's trying to make it harder for people, right? Like if you read John, it's like he just keeps saying weird stuff. And then we'll see next week, he even turns to Peter and says, what about you guys? You want to walk away too? And Peter's like, we got nowhere to go, bro. Like, wh what are we going to do, right? It, Jesus says some hard things. But what he means by hunger and thirst is that 
The deepest, most fulfilling satisfaction we are looking for can never be found in created things, but only in Jesus. This is why we come to Jesus and we sit at his feet and we pay attention to his word. So if you're in the position of thinking you need more than just Jesus, like you need, I, you know, I know Jesus is supposed to be it, but I, I feel like there's, there's more. I invite you to hear Jesus right now from his word. You will not be truly satisfied in anything outside of him. Ask some of us who have tried, right? I can tell you it don't work. It, it won't work. Whatever you think you're looking for will not satisfy you. And the judgment that Jesus delivers is the inability to believe who Jesus is when he's right in front of him, right? You've seen me and yet you don't believe. They were looking for something else. They didn't have spiritual eyes to recognize fulfillment when he was standing right in front of them. I don't know if they wanted just their own curiosity satisfied or if they wanted more physical things. I think a lot of it was political power. They wanted to be a great nation, right? They wanted to be strong again. They wanted Israel to, to rule and reign, but in the process, they actually missed the point. Which brings up a question, why is it so hard to see Jesus for some people? Why, is, why is, can so many people see clearly what Jesus is doing or saying, but they're not believing in him? Is Jesus doing something wrong? Is Jesus actually failing in his mission as he stands before this crowd of Israelites? Is he failing because he can't get across to them what he's trying to say? And some of us may be tempted to think the same thing. Why can't people just clearly see what's in front of them? Why can't these people see Jesus for who he is? Well, it might help us to know that Jesus didn't lose confidence in his mission. In fact, his confidence is fully in the Father to accomplish exactly what he intended to do. Jesus states this in verses 37 through 40. He says things like this, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is it. This is the will, that I shouldn't lose anything of all that he has given me, but I'll raise it up on the last day. For the will of the Father is that everyone who looks on me, who looks on the Son and believes in him, will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. It's very clear. Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. The will of the Father will be accomplished. Jesus declares that. Look, I'm not messing up just because you guys stand in front of me and can't see who I am. That doesn't change the fact that I'm going to accomplish this mission. Everything that God intends, everything that the Father wants is going to happen. It's secure. The language here is clear. All, all the Father gives me will come to me. It is neuter and singular, referring to a general quality of persons, right? A group of people. And Jesus' words match that detail from the group to the individual. Jesus is saying that every individual who is part of those, that group whom the Father is giving to him, will come to him. Everybody who the Father says, you're going to Jesus, they go to Jesus, right? In other words, Jesus is going to receive all those whom the Father is giving to him. But even more clearly, Jesus will keep them. Everyone the Father brings in, says one commentator, the Son keeps in. Right? And this is what the crowds miss. They miss the relationship between the Father and the Son. They can't see that Jesus is who he says he is. The Son is the Father's chosen agent to bring provision and deliverance for his people. So to reject what the Son offers, is to reject the Father. Jesus' words are emphasizing that He and the Father are united. Christ's presence and work on earth is the will of the Father. 
And it's clear here also that seeing is not necessarily believing. Right? Have you ever wondered why, why people don't just bow the knee when, when Jesus is mentioned now? It's not for lack of evidence. It's a lack of a soft heart of faith. And Jesus says that the Father's will is that Jesus would raise up all that God has given to him on the last day. This language is describing the reality of who Jesus is. He is a present, satisfying reality, but he is also a future, satisfying destiny, eternal life. So real life now and future life forever. And it is even more real than the bread that they've been looking for that's just going to keep them alive a little bit longer on the earth. But also in this passage, and we don't have time to get into the details. Uh, if, you, if you guys, we do have a podcast here at the church that we try to get on a weekly basis. This week we'll actually be digging a little bit more into the, the statements that Jesus makes here and the sovereignty that's contained. And by sovereignty we mean what is God's role in salvation and how do we parse out these verses to make sense, right? But the Gospel of John has a very strong thread of God's complete control in salvation. But with both Jesus and John, there's no long explanation for this, right? It's simply stated that it's true. All the Father has given me will come to me. Scripture is absolutely clear that God is completely sovereign in salvation. It's very clear. It's also clear that man is responsible for their rejection of Christ. And while it may seem like these two things are incompatible... It is presented to us in just this way. Jesus doesn't give a long explanation of how these things can be. He just says, all that the Father gives me are going to come to me. I won't cast them out. I'll, I'll raise them till the last day, right? In these moments, we might feel the tension of Jesus' words. We might be tempted to think, well, if it's up to the Father, then my decisions don't really matter, right? What does it matter if I share the gospel or not? If it's up to God to save people and I don't play into that, you know, then what, is, what does it really matter? But that's fatalism. That's not biblical truth intention. And one of the things that Christians really have to get better at is understanding that we don't know everything. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon says this about, about God's predestination and man's free will. And I want to read, read you this because for those of you who might be struggling with these concepts, uh, hopefully this will clear up some confusion. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few people can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they're not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths can't be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. It is. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for his actions, that is true. And it's my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. And then Jesus draws them back to the real point. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Because that's the point, right? Not for them to get caught up on like, wait a minute, what do you mean all the Father wills? He draws them to the point. Look on the Son and believe. 
Remember, this is actually a rebuke of the crowd. This is the crowd showing themselves to actually be outside of the kingdom. What appears to be their rejection of Jesus is actually the Father's rejection of them for their inability to recognize Jesus for who he is. Because the blind have no ability to actually judge the true beauty in front of them because they're restricted by their inability. But it's even more with spiritual things. People who reject Jesus do so because they are blind. It tells us that in Scripture. Paul's very clear. The God of this world has blinded them, right? The God of this age has blinded them so they can't see. And that blindness can't be removed by just trying harder to see, but only by the work of God. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. Now, again, Jesus won't fail in his mission. Not only in going to the cross, right, because that was part of the mission, to go to the cross, but also in not losing any that the Father has given to him, but raising them up on the last day. I, I hypothesize that there are some in here this morning who struggle with assurance or confirmation of your salvation. Right? You maybe go back and forth, and maybe you think, well, I've gone too far this time, I made a mistake, maybe I'm out. Can I send my way out of the grace of God? Well, here's the deal. If Jesus, by his own testimony, doesn't accomplish raising all of his on that last day, then it's not really our failure as much as it's Jesus' failure. And Jesus doesn't fail what his mission is. Do you agree with that? Yeah, Jesus doesn't fail in his mission. But this should give you great hope. If you're struggling in here this morning with assurance, you're struggling with security, if you were the one in control of your salvation, you know yourself well enough to know that that would be pretty shaky security. But if the Father draws you in, and if the Son keeps you and promises to raise you at that last day, and the Spirit will encourage and empower and sanctify you, that kind of confidence is life-giving. It is the will of the Father that His children have eternal life. Do you hear me? It is the will of the Father that His children have eternal life. The God who saves you keeps you because it is his will that Jesus should raise you on that last day. If you are a believer, you don't have to worry that you're going to send yourself out of salvation. One of my favorite lines about this is simple. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. But we must see the rejection by the crowd and consider our own response to Jesus. We have to learn the lesson that the crowd doesn't learn. We should be thankful for the provision that God supplies in the Son, the bread of life. Instead of grumbling as the Israelites, as the crowd does, we should look to the Son and live. We should be thankful for the satisfaction and the substance that's only in Jesus. When the source of eternal life stands before these people and says, believe in me, they complain about the way that he's chosen to reveal these things. They don't, they don't buy it. And is that, is that true of us? There is real life only in Jesus that is given to us by the Father, and it never runs out. It carries us through to eternity because Jesus has promised to do it. It is real life. The bread, Jesus, is real life. Verses 41 to 51. So then the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, in verse 41. Now the language here changes from the crowd to the Jews, which is now what we're going to see in the book of John, that, that he changes it from the crowd to the Jews, that there's this little change in the, 
the identification of this crowd. And the reason he does that is because what we see happening here is the same rejection that God got from the Israelites in the Old Testament is now manifest in these people here who should have been waiting for the Messiah. They're not soft-hearted and receptive. They didn't get what they wanted from him, so now they show themselves to be spiritually blind, right? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his parents. They're like, wait a minute, you didn't come down from heaven? You couldn't have come down from heaven. We know who your parents are. We know where you're from. You can't be from heaven. They just outright reject his claim again. But again, they focus on, they focus on the physical, what they think is a physical reality. There's no way he can be from heaven because we know who his earthly parents are. There's no spiritual understanding. They're so earthly-minded, they can't understand the concept. The, the Messiah could be both from above and also yet born. And Jesus rebukes them. And in Exodus 16, 7 and 8, Moses tells the Jews, hey, God has heard your grumblings. And what we get now is Jesus hears their grumblings, and instead of just telling them God has heard you, he's going to give them God's response to their grumblings, right? Jesus says in verses 43 through 51, stop complaining. Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Here's three quick things that we can see in what Jesus is saying. One is that God draws and teaches his people. When he says, all, and they will all be taught by God. When he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draws means that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself, or in the case of a person, unwilling to do so, right? No one comes to Jesus unless God is drawing them. The drawing here is described as a wooing. It's not a, a pushing or a forcing. It is a wooing. It is a pulling in. It is a removing of the veil, the blindness, to see the greatness of God's character. It is what we would call illumination. But also, Isaiah 54, 13, which is where this verse he quotes comes from, they will all be taught by God. God has to teach us before we come to Jesus. He teaches us in the internal testimony of saying, hey, this is, this is the Savior of the world. He speaks to us. He opens our eyes and he opens our heart, which is what his promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel were about. New hearts, new spirits. Augustine said, the Son spoke, but the Father taught. Also, Jesus is the ultimate and final spokesperson for God. The teaching that God gives us is mediated through Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And one of the things that, that I hear a lot of times is I'll hear even some people who claim to be Christians talk about like, well, you know, multiple religion. We all, we all worship the same God. We don't worship the same God. The God of Islam is not the God of Christianity. It's completely different, right? You, you don't access God, but by Christ Jesus. Jesus is the way. If there is no Christ, there is no true God. To reject Jesus is to reject God and to reject God's provision. Whoever believes has eternal life. To believe in Jesus is the same as believing the testimony of God. Any provision outside of Jesus will not last. So to reject Jesus is to forfeit real, eternal, lasting provision, fulfillment. 
And the thing that most people are prone to get hung up on is to focus so much on themselves rather than where Jesus is directing the focus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Look to Jesus. Instead of spending time trying to figure out, well, how can this stuff all happen? How is it that God does this and he does this? And how am I supposed to wrap my mind around this? The whole point of this passage that your eyes and our eyes would turn from ourselves and and our abilities to what God is offering to us, right? Turn from your cares, turn from yourself to the true source of all fulfillment, the substance of eternal satisfaction. The, The Israelites were so focused on simply surviving, they missed the provision that God gave to them. And they still died. It was in the Old Testament, it's happening again in this scene right here with the crowd. So focused on their material situation, they could not see the spiritual reality. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? Jesus offers permanent life. To see Jesus and take hold of Jesus is to be provided for forever. All the deepest longings we have as created beings, we now find satisfied only in Christ. Our eyes have to be turned from the lesser to the greater, from the shadows to the substance, from bread that doesn't last past a day to bread that sustains for all time. Jesus says in verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. And what he's talking about there is going to the cross, right? What I'm going to offer for the world, for the life of this world is my flesh. This bread, this eternal substance, I'm going to offer it not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, for the Gentiles also. Right, the feeding of the 5,000 is actually meant to point to the bigger work of the bread that Jesus will give for the world. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to point towards the sacrifice, the true bread, the real life. And this is real life. Jesus is real life, but you have to have the spiritual eyes to see this. Don't miss this. You know, like if if you just think deeply, if you get alone by yourself for a second and and ponder what life is like, you know there is no real life in the worldly things that we subconsciously believe will satisfy us. We get them one day, they're gone the next. It's just like the manna. Yeah, it's great for now, but it's gone the next day. And you can't cheat death. You can't accumulate enough things to buy safety and satisfaction. You will never find another human being who can satisfy your deepest longing either because they can't even find satisfaction to theirs. No philosophy is going to give you some sort of transcendent knowledge that will prevent you from getting mad when you're in traffic or lashing out at the people close to you in anger. Not children, not jobs, not friendships, not substances, not travel, not homes, not fame, not followers, not fashion, not sports, not seasons, not sex, not honor, not recognition, not politics, not power. Nothing lasts but Jesus. There is no hope anywhere but Jesus. Yeah. Nothing satisfies truly but Jesus. There is nothing this world can provide you with that can even come close to promising what is given to those who are satisfied in the love and work of Christ Jesus. And as Jesus already said, it can never be lost If you want to know the power of Christ's love, go to Romans 8, 35 through 39. Make a home there. And this invitation is given not just to see it, but to take hold of it and feast. Verses 52 through 59, he says, eat the bread of life. 
And after this amazing declaration of Jesus, right, they all bowed down and gave him the honor, right? Jesus says, hey, here I am, here on the bread. And they were all like, yes, no. Then the Jews began to grumble with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They still didn't get it. The blindness of unbelief is when the source and the substance of true life pours out the eternal truth, right? Timeless eternal truth. The response of human beings is to stand in judgment of him. But Jesus graciously answers their questions by doubling down on the truth, right? He says, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, the one who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus takes it farther. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. This is a tough concept for these people. The benefits of Christ's sacrifice must be partaken by his people. They must share in it or there is no life. And look at how many times Jesus in that, those verses says, the, the one who eats. He says, eats, eats, eats. And the language, this is, this is going to be hard for my wife, this, this one. My wife doesn't like, I don't know if you guys, anybody in here have a problem with hearing people chew? Okay, you're not alone, Haley. Uh, so, like, but like, does it ever bother you when somebody's smacking their food? Okay, yeah, see, that's, that's more of it. What... What John actually does is the, the next time Jesus says eats, the first time he says eats, it's one thing. The second time means this. The Greek actually says it's an aggressive form, like munching or gnawing, actively or audibly eating. This is not a passive, polite partaking. This is a full, aggressive participation. It'd be like if you hadn't eaten for a week and this was sitting here and you're sitting there, you're going to make a beeline for the stage and try to tackle me for the bread. You know what I'm saying? You want that. And you're not going to eat it politely because you know that you need it. It's aggressive. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. The invitation Jesus gives is fully, completely partake of himself. It's a description of something that is more real than the realest thing we could imagine. It is an ultimate satisfaction. It is an ultimate fulfillment. It's the description of somebody who has never had real food discovering the most satisfying culinary experience of their lives, but it's more than that. It's eternal. It is lasting. It is abiding. And there is a remaining of us in the participation and of Jesus in the participation. In Jesus, we find what we ultimately were looking for, which the crowd didn't, right? In Jesus, we find it, true substance and true satisfaction. It's a sharing in Christ that actually becomes our true life. Galatians 2.20, Paul says that. He remains in us and we in him, which we see all over the book of John. The Father remains in the Son. The Spirit remains upon Jesus. Believers remain in Christ and he remains in them in John 15. We share in Christ's life so much that his death is our death. His life is our life. It's a continual participation in his death and life, which we call sanctification. It's becoming like Christ. And to partake in Jesus' life and death is to partake in the very life of God, but to reject the life and death of Jesus is to reject God. Reminds, remind us of what, uh, what is said to the Israelites, I set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. 
Jesus is the bread given to God's true people. To receive the life and death of Jesus is to receive true, lasting life. Not like the bread that was given in the wilderness. And Jesus holds out this invitation even to the skeptical, unbelieving crowd. It's a grace that Jesus stands and tolerates their arguments, right? He does it because it is an offer, right? Eat and live. But to add more shocking detail, we're told at the end of the interaction where this takes place, these things he said in the synagogue when he taught in Capernaum, they're in the synagogue. The people who should have seen these things coming were completely blind to it. They were looking for something that Jesus wasn't offering. They were looking for political security and political power, and Jesus like, not offering that. I'm offering something better. Eternity. In the place they should have known about God, they missed it. And when God comes to speak to us and make the same offer to us, will we listen to him? So how, how should we respond to this? Just three quick things. One is don't trust your stomach. This is about desires, right? You will feel like you want certain things. You'll get hungry for certain things and you'll feel like you want them, but you shouldn't trust your feelings. They're self-seeking and skewed. You will be tempted to think your life actually belongs to you. I, I said this in the first service. And it's, maybe it's a little overshooting it, but I said, young people, many times your feelings are just stupid, right? Because all of our feelings are stupid. You're going to feel like you want to do something today that five years from now you're going to be like, that was really not good, right? You're going to have desires in the moment that you'll realize like two weeks later, that was a dumb desire. That was actually bad for me. I wanted things that were bad for me. Don't trust your stomach. What is it that you're actually looking for? Jesus is not going to provide you things that draw your attention away from him. Stop looking to earthly things. There is no true life there. And stop looking to yourself because you have no life in you. Number two is this. Stop complaining about the provision. And this has to do with circumstances. The offer that Jesus makes to have life in him is to join him both in suffering and in life. The suffering of the cross and the resurrection right? The tension of future resurrection, that things won't be perfect here. We look at life right now and we're like, I wish Jesus would just give me what I want. But don't you think Jesus knows better what you need? Don't you think Jesus knows better what we need? The substance of life. And when we grumble about the, the provision that we're given in this life, we're actually putting ourselves and our preferences at the center of everything when we are called to participate in both Christ's death and his life. There is no resurrection without the suffering. Jesus said, if you can't take up your cross and follow me, right? You're not worthy of following me. We've only been given a foretaste, enough to keep us eagerly awaiting the full, joyful, eternal feast. Like, I'm looking at this bread right now, and even standing here, I know that when I get home, I'm going to eat some of this bread, right? But I got to wait, because if, if I do it now, I can't talk. The third thing is this, feast on Christ's everlasting life. It doesn't benefit me to look at the bread or talk about the bread. It doesn't benefit me unless I eat the bread, right? It doesn't benefit us to be only about the activity that tells us what the bread is like. You must partake of it. The life is in the bread. The life is in Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Kenneth Boas says, only Christ can live the Christian life. If you think you can live the Christian life, you can only live the Christian life if you're remaining in and abiding in Christ. 
Stop trying to live for Jesus and start living in Jesus. It's not about perfectionism. It's not about passivity. It's about participating in Christ. This morning, I would invite you, if you hear this offer, man, eternal life would be great. It would be great to have my deepest longings fulfilled and my deepest uh, needs satisfied. May I offer to you the same thing that Christ said. There is life only in Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Find life in Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would first apply it to our own hearts. Lord, help us to look beyond the circumstances and satisfactions that the world offers. And Lord, to find our greatest desire in being satisfied with the abundance of what you offer to us. Lord, help us to trust you, that you really want the best things for us, and the best things for us are you. Lord, all things are from your hand. We give thanks for that. We give thanks for the provision that we're given in Christ Jesus, Lord. We pray this morning that we would see him, believe in him, walk in him, and remain in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.